Welcome, everyone, to our very first episode of Uncommon Valor. I've been wanting to do this segment for a while, and I'm incredibly excited to add it to the podcast. I love Marine Corps history. There are tons of fascinating and exciting stories that help cement the Marine legacy. However, it's challenging to find the human element of these stories in history books. I'm going to try to do my part in fixing that by sitting with Marines and talking about their side of the story. In this episode, I sit with Katie Cook and talk about her time in the Marine Corps. Katie is a Marine Corps aviator and one of the few female Marine aviators to fly combat missions in support of Operation Enduring Freedom. She has a fantastic story about her time in Afghanistan. After tours in the Middle East and supporting an evacuation from an American embassy in Northern Africa, Katie became the first female Blue Angels pilot flying the illustrious Fat Albert. This interview was fun, and coincidentally fell on her 12th anniversary in the Marine Corps. I hope you enjoy it. Semper Fi. Katie, thanks for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. So first question here, it's not really Marine Corps related, but how are you and the family doing with this whole coronavirus pandemic? Uh, well, thank you for asking. We're actually doing pretty well. Um, my husband and I both work from home. I'm a reservist now. Uh, so I work for a company called Salesforce. So I, I work remotely anyways. That's our normal, um, as does my husband. The only abnormal thing is our now three-year-old and one-and-a-half-year-old are at home with us and not in daycare. And so it can get a little crazy when we're trying to do like a Zoom meeting or something and Paw Patrol is like blaring in the background. <laughs> um, but as far as health-wise, we're all uh, happy, healthy. Um, I'm 29 weeks pregnant, expecting our third, which is a girl this time. So Congrats. everything's going swimmingly. Um, knock on wood that it keeps going that way. <laughs> yeah, congratulations on the pregnancy. Thank you. Yeah, um, I, I, we're in the same boat here. So I, my day job is cybersecurity. I'm a cybersecurity architect okay. for a large bank. So I'm, I'm very familiar with Salesforce. Um, but we have, the, we have the same thing going on. We have three children. Uh, they're older, so 10, 8, and 7. Um, but okay. no school. So it's kind of just juggling works and, and meetings and, and <laughs> education, just schooling them up and checking up on their work. So it's a hassle. So I could imagine with little ones running around, it's kind of hard to stay focused during one of your calls. Yeah, for sure. For sure. But, um, it, you adapt and overcome, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. So I, I guess we could start from the beginning. Um, would you mind okay. telling us about your, your childhood, your parents and where you grew up? Yeah, sure. So, um, I am from, I'm a third generation military pilot. Uh, so my, my grandparents, uh, both my grandfathers were in the Army Air Corps. Uh, my parents met actually at Patrick Air Force Base. They both went to high school together. Um, and so my dad was a Naval Academy graduate, class of 1981, as was his brother, uh, was class of 1976. And then his younger brother went to the Air Force Academy. We don't talk about him. But, <laughs> but um, so my I was born in NAS Jacks. My dad was a A6 pilot and then uh, moved over to be F-18s. 
in his career. So I moved around a whole lot as I was growing up, lived everywhere from, you know, Lemoore, California, Newport, Rhode Island, even out in Yokosuka, Japan. I did two years of high school there. Um, and growing up, my paternal grandfather really uh, instilled in me this idea of a life of service. So his family were, he was a, his family immigrated from Sweden. He was the first generation born in the United States. And um, being an officer in the Army Air Corps literally brought his family from, you know, almost having no possessions to being upper middle class. And so he lived the actual, you know, American dream. Um, and so he really instilled in this idea of service of giving back to this country that had given so much to me. And so I was, you know, playing around with like, am I going to be a, a firefighter, a police officer, um, a doctor? I even considered the nunnery at, at one point, but I decided I wanted to have children and they tend to frown on nuns with children. <laughs> yeah. um, so I, uh, I ultimately decided that, you know, following in my father's footsteps, uh, going to the Naval Academy, being a military officer was something that I, I, I could give back to my country, but also kind of was in line with what I wanted to achieve in my life. Uh, so I went to the Naval Academy and I, I commissioned a second lieutenant in actually 12 years today, which is crazy. 12 nice. years today, I graduated from the Naval Academy. Oh, good timing. Congrats on your anniversary. Yeah, <laughs> thank you. <laughs> so when did your father move over to F-18s? Do you remember the year? Oh, um, it was before I was born, I'm pretty sure. So I was born in 86. So it, it actually may have been right around when I was born. Yeah, so it, I, I don't know for sure. Yeah, it was just more out of curiosity. I know there was the F-18s were heavily involved with the bombing of Libya in, in 86. Just wondering if he was part of that. It's kind of a small, small group. Yeah. Yeah, I, I don't believe he was. I know he was um, Desert Shield, Desert Storm. Yep. He, he dropped ordnance there. Um, but that was when I was, you know, five or six. Um, so I, I, I don't know the exact timing. I was born at NAS Jackson, and then we moved to California, uh, Lamore, California, when I was about 18 months old. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I, that's when he really, I think, went through the rag and learned, learned the Hornet. So that would have been, you know, 80, 89 or so when he was like full-blown F-18. Are you the only Marine in your family? I am, which is crazy because I have, you know, a, a plethora of Army Air Corps, Air Force, and then a ton of Navy. Even my little brother is Navy, um, but I'm the only Marine. I married a Marine, so my husband um, was also a Marine pilot. But yeah, we're, we're holding it down here as <laughs> the only Marine. <laughs> Representing. So what, what made you decide to go yeah. Marine Corps? Uh, it, it ultimately was kind of the influences I got while I was at the academy because we do summer training. We don't get summers off like normal college kids. Um, so we'll, you know, either go to a squadron or, or a boat, or we'll, you know, go to what we call leatherneck, which is like a mini PBS. Um, people who are interested in like spec ops, will go do mini buds and stuff like that. So, um, I had a company officer there who was a Marine. And so his influence was, um, was, was pretty influential at the, at a very like kind of developing time in my life when I was trying to figure out what I wanted to do. And then we did this thing called pro Tramid, Um, and that's where you do like one week on a sub on subs, one week air, one week Marine Corps and one week, like in a classroom learning how to do public speaking or something. Um, it's been a while, so it's hard to remember 12 years, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> um, but 
But uh, my week in the Marines was really, really influential to me because I, I was really impressed with the caliber of enlisted Marine that I was exposed to. Not, no hit on the Navy or anything, but I spent, you know, four or five weeks my previous summer on a, on a ship. And while they knew their job, they, it was like paled in comparison to the professionalism, the dedication, the knowledge the, uh, you know, just all, I was completely blown away by the caliber of enlisted um, person that I met. And so I knew that I wanted to lead that type of person. You know, I, I wanted to make their life as easy as possible um, and learn as much as I could from that, that type of person. And so um, ultimately that's kind of what swung me to the Marine Corps. My wife had a similar, uh, I mean, she wasn't in the military, but when I got out of the Marine Corps in 2006, and uh, okay. we, we got pregnant with my daughter really quick. Um, so around 2009, and I got a job as a, a contractor in Germany. It was on an army okay. base. We always played around. I told her the Marines were the best branch. Uh, she, was a act, she was a civilian employee for the Department of the Navy. So she, okay. yeah, she, we, we just joked around with it. But when we went to Europe, to Germany, Stuttgart, uh, we were walking around on base and there were Marines on base and there were army on base. and nothing against the army, but my wife said that you could, you could tell the difference just yep. by the way Marines carry themselves and they, they walk around base and they just seem more professional. Yep. So, yeah. Yeah. She, she would share your, your thoughts on that one. So what, what's the path? I was enlisted. I never sought to be an officer, mm -hmm. so I'm not really familiar with the path. Um, how do yeah. you become a Marine Corps officer and how do you become, how do you get into aviation? Yeah, so there's several different ways to become a Marine Corps officer, right? There, um, there's like the normal kid way. They go to college and then they commission after college and they go to OCC. That's what my husband did. He, you know, just he went to OCS after he completed college. And then immediately after OCS, he went to TBS, which is our six month course where they, where they teach you to be like a rifle platoon commander. Um, and then you go, you get your MOS at the end of TBS. Um, and then you'll go off to either be a pilot or, you know, uh, logistician, you name it. That's where you go to your MOS school. Um, there's also PLC. Those are the kids who do like half of their OCS um, one summer and then they'll turn around and do the other half a second summer while they're still in college. So as soon as they graduate, they earn their commission and they'll go to TBS. Um, and so that's one way to become an officer. And then the rogue one is, well, there's a couple weird ones like MESEP. I'm sure you've heard about those, you know, yeah. those are enlisted guys who end up being officers. Um, and then uh, there's the Naval Academy. We're weird and we always get made fun of because we don't go to OCS because we do four years at the Academy. We just go straight to TBS. Yeah. And so because we didn't do the Quigley, which is where they like swim in this gross swamp, I guess, um, and, and do, and do like the really, I, I'm not saying that OCS isn't shitty. Everything I've heard about it, it's a, it's a, it's hard, you know? Yeah. Um, and I'm not saying that it, it, there's anything against it or anything. And trust me, I hear it from my husband that I'm not a real Marine Corps officer because I didn't do this quickly, <laughs> but so the Naval Academy, we, we commission, we go to TBS for six months. And so that's the great equalizer, right? Everyone goes through TBS. Um, and at least when I was going through, you could go as either a ground contract or an air contract. I already had an air contract before I went to TBS. So I knew I was going to be a pilot on the backside. I wasn't competing for my MOS. 
Um, I have heard through the grapevine that that's changing um, or it has changed. I'm not 100% sure, um, but I'm pretty sure people can still go to TBS as an air contract. Otherwise, if you're a ground contract, your, your performance at TBS um, competing against everyone else in your TBS company determines your MOS at the end. Mm-hmm. You'll put in a, obviously a dream sheet, um, but it's the needs of the Marine Corps, right? So I finished up TBS. Then I went to a flight school. You go through basically three parts of flight school, API, um, which is aviation pre-indoctrination training. So that's all in a classroom, six weeks of learning about navigation, weather, engines, stuff like that. You'll finish API, then you'll go to primary where you fly um, a T6 Texan. It's a single engine. Um, It's got an ejection seat, though. It goes pretty fast, um, relatively, if that's kind of your first airplane. Um, So it's a steep learning curve. Um, Then at the end of primary is where they'll decide what aircraft you're going to fly. That depends on what we call a NSS or a Naval Standard Score, I think is what it stands for. Um, and it's on a scale of like zero to 80 and it's a bell curve ranked off of like the previous 200 people who had gone through before you. Um, and so based off of that, you're, you qualify for different aircraft. So like to get jets, you have to have a, a pretty high NSS score, like 55 or higher. And these change year to year, depending on the needs of the Marine Corps, obviously, mm-hmm. but in general around a 55 to a 60 jet score, uh, C-130s is probably around a, just 45, 50 or higher. Um, and then helicopters are like, you have to meet the minimum score of 35 or higher. <laughs> not, not that there's anything against the helo pilots. There's some really, really amazing pilots who just wanted helos, right? Um, and usually depending on how good your score is, you'll get your first choice, whether that's helos or jets or C-130s or, or plopters or MB-22s. Um, and so um, C-130s are the hardest ones to get only because there's only three active duty squadrons. So generally there's only about 12 spots a year, if that. Um, so I was lucky enough to get one of those C-130 spots. Uh, so then uh, after you finish primary, depending on which one you go or which one you get, you'll go to advanced. And so I went to multi-engine advanced uh, out of Corpus Christi, Texas, where I flew a twin engine King Air. Um, if you go helos, you know, you'll go to Whiting Field and fly this little trainer helicopter and then if you go jets you'll um go fly t-45s out of kingsville or meridian so i went to the multi-engine trainer out of corpus i finished that got my wings in october of 2011 and then i went to um in uh marine corps air station cherry point where i went through what we call an frs or a it's a it's basically like a a training squadron to learn how to fly the c-130 specifically and then I reported to VMGR 252 after I finished there. Yeah, the C-130 is famous in the Marine Corps, right? Everyone knows that aircraft. There's even cadence yep. on it. And this is more ignorance on my end, but I, I always thought of the C-130 more as a, a troop and equipment carrier and air refueling. But it it's also used a lot for close air support, right? It is, yeah. So, um, and you're not... It's, it's nothing, no hit against you because it is a relatively new close air support platform, at least for the Marine Corps. Um, so the, the Harvest Hawk is, is what we call it. And any normal C-130 can be converted to a Harvest Hawk. Uh, we refer to the package as a roll-on, roll-off capability. Um, it's not that easy. It takes several days to kind of convert it, but any normal C-130 can be converted. Um, and so 
the I believe the first deployment of it was around 2010, 2011-ish. Um, I went in 2013 on a Harvest Hawk. And so, yeah, we when we were over there, we did anything from battlefield illumination to aerial refueling, uh, pair drops. We did a lot of moving um, cargo and stuff. That's why our call sign was trash because we were moving stuff around a lot. Yeah. Um, and then, and then obviously close air support with the Harvest Hawk. So how, how long is school? Is school uh, for, to learn how to fly the C-130? Or? Yeah. Yeah. So for enlisted, you, you go to your MOS school, you graduate, yep. then you get sent to the fleet. Um, what's the duration of uh, school for, to become a C-130 pilot and how long until you actually arrived in the fleet? Yeah, so to give you an idea, let's see here. I I commissioned in in May of 2008. Then I reported to TBS because I went to grad school. I was a a nerd. So I went to grad school after I commissioned. So I went to TBS March of 2009, finished in November of 2009. So I started flight school, we'll say like that API, that first part. I started that probably the spring of 2010. And I didn't get my wings until October of 2011. Okay. So it took about a year and a half for me to get wings. And then I still wasn't qualified to fly a C-130. So I had to do another six months to learn how to fly the C-130. So now that's a total of two years just in flight school, um, really. And then that's when I became a 3P. So a 3P is like basic co-pilot where, you know, you're you're just smart enough to survive, right? Like you... you <laughs> they don't put you in charge of anything. They put, they put somebody who's had a lot more um, experience than you. Um, and so that's a three P then you'll be three P for, you know, a couple hundred hours and you'll upgrade to two P and then two P for another, you know, a couple hundred hours, then you'll become an aircraft commander. And that's where you start getting the various qualifications in the plane of being, you know, an instructor pilot or being qualified to do aerial refueling or battlefield illumination or whatever it is. And so, um, at least in the aviation community, getting qualifications is is required to keep it advancing in your career. Um, but as far as school goes, to get from TBS to becoming a three P, it took me about two years. And that's that's quick. And you deployed to Helmand Province in 2013, correct? I did. Yep. That's I, I was on Leatherneck. Um, for those of you that know where that is, um, we, we were actually parked on the bastion side. So we got the hookup with the awesome British chow hall. Um, but, but yeah, we, I was at Leatherneck and we did the majority of our missions were in Hellman. Um, and then we, we would occasionally go down to Dwyer, you know, um, Kabul, Kandahar, but for the most part, we were all, all in Hellman. That that seems like a relatively short period of time to after after your training to get deployed uh, to Afghanistan. Yeah, it, it was. I, so I checked into let's see here. So that would have been May of goodness. So May of twelve is when I got to my first operational squadron, and I deployed in January of thirteen. So less than you know less than a year it was seven months or whatever it was uh, i deployed to afghanistan and i uh went as a 3p or i went as a 2p um and then i came back and uh, because i got so many hours in my first deployment those three months i was back in the states i upgraded aircraft commander and then immediately deployed again in support of special magcap crisis response 
and I left right around uh, December of 13. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. I was deployed in Afghanistan January to August of 13, and then I deployed again in December of 13 until May of 14, and that was for special mag task. And that was really interesting because I was a brand new aircraft commander. You know, hey, you're the one in charge. You're the one making decisions, right? And my third flight, I was like evacuating an embassy. So it was nuts. It was a very, very steep learning curve, but what an amazing kind of experience to have. So, yeah, it, those, those two deployments, uh, there, there's a lot to, a lot to unpack there. So one, one thing I want to get into is your experience in Helmand province and your, yep. uh, just with the Marines, just providing close air support for a Marine. Was it a squad that was being under attack by machine gun fire? Yeah. Can you share that experience mm-hmm. with us? Yeah, sure. So um, it was actually my first live fire event. Um, I We got a nine line, you know, we could, it was a, a tick or a troops in contact. And over the radio, you could actually hear as the JTAC was talking, like the tick, 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 tick of the rounds, like hitting behind him. Um, and so there's like cloud cover, there was mountains around, and it was just kind of a, almost like a varsity shot that we had to make um and and again I had only done practice I had never fired an actual um weapon or excuse me missile at this point and so I was like oh my goodness what you know my heart was beating but you hear your you know your fellow marines pinned down you're like you you can't fail you can't mess this up right so um, managed to descend under the cloud cover, avoid the mountains, obviously, uh, turn in for the attack. And we fired two by Hellfire missiles, um, took out a PKM team that was on top of a building. Um, and, you know, afterwards, it's like really quiet and you're, and you're just listening. to. And obviously you watch the tape and you saw the two missiles hit and you're waiting for the, um, you know, the guy, the, the JTAC to come back and tell you like, were the effects on target or whatever. And yeah, he came back and said like, we're good. Thanks so much for your help, whatever. And um, fast forward, like to my second deployment, I was in Spain, Maroon, Spain, for those of you who've been there, and there's a bar on base. And I was actually at the bar, a couple drinks in, you know, and, and some guy taps me on the shoulder and he's like, Hey, did you fly Phil zero two when you were in Afghanistan? And I was like, yeah, I did. And he's like, I recognize your voice. And and this isn't uncommon because there's not very many women that fly anyways, <laughs> excuse me. And then there's not very women, many women that are talking on the radio. And so uh, because you can be out in the field for a very long time and not hear a woman's voice, they tend to um, remember you. And so he said, hey, did you fly Phil Zero Two? And I said, I did. And he's like, do you remember this time? There was this three-man team, PKM team on top of a building. They had pinned down, blah, blah, blah. And I was like, yeah, I do. That was my first flight that I ever, you know, employed uh, against the real life target. And he's like, that was me and my squad. Like you, you guys like literally saved our life. And, you know, I've done a lot of amazing things in my career, but that is by far like the proudest moment of my career because I joined the Marine Corps and I was a Marine Corps pilot to support those Marines on the ground and putting a face with that sentiment and knowing that I, achieved my ultimate goal of what I wanted to do is, is by far the proudest moment that I've had. Yeah, I bet. I mean, and just the coincidence alone of 
of one of the, cause Spain isn't a major uh, a duty station for Marines. So there, there's, there's right. Marines there, but there's not a lot of Marines. So just the, the timing of you two being in that bar together is crazy. Yep. Um, yeah. but also it just tells you, it goes back to your, your comment about OCS and, and how your husband teases you. And we, we have that in the Marine Corps. Marines are very competitive and we do that mm-hmm. with, with grunts and support and air wing, and we all tease each other. But at the end of the day, it just shows you how much that we depend on each other, right? So regardless yep. of your MOS, you, you serve an important mission. And the third thing there is, uh, I don't know, I, I think you have a point about being, having a female voice over the radio is very rare, but you hear a lot about PTSD in the military and the impact it has on veterans. And I think mm-hmm. the story just kind of demonstrates that, right? Just demonstrates how the mind works. A, a year later, he was able to recognize your voice um, yep. and, and tie it to filth too, which is, which is crazy, right? So that yep. is obviously embedded in his head. Do you still keep in touch? Do you remember his name? I don't, which is so sad because he was, he was the JTAC for the GCE of the MAGTAC that I was on. Um, and then they rotated out, uh, and, and were replaced. And so I unfortunately didn't, um, get any contact information with him. And, and it was like, you know how it is when you're like three beers in and you're having this conversation and then you're like, well, let me buy you a beer, man. So we had like a great night hanging out, but. Um, unfortunately I didn't get his contact information, but you know, uh, like I said, it, it's a, a story that will stay with me for the rest of my life. It's a great story. <laughs> Thank you. And, and back to and talking about South Sudan. So that, that holds mm-hmm. a special place in my heart because I was a Marine security guard, now a Marine embassy guard, Okay. but you don't realize how vulnerable these Marines are. So they're at each embassy there are a few larger embassies that have 20 to 30 Marines, but, but many of these smaller ones, they only have five to eight Marines stationed there at a time. Mm-hmm. And that's if you're mm-hmm. lucky. You know, when I was there, most of, most of the time we were short staffed. So yep. the, if I remember correctly, South Sudan and Juba, there was heavy fighting that broke out. I think more than a thousand people died. Almost 200 grand, uh, 200,000 were kicked from their homes and had no place to live. And they were starting mm-hmm. to attack American citizens. So it was a, we, I know as a Marine security guard, we heavily relied on, on the support from the fast teams and from aerial support and any, anything yep. that we had that's, that's close by. There's usually some type of naval ship that's by, but man, yeah, it, that's, that's some pressure there for those guys. Um, did, <laughs> I, I was listening to an interview of you earlier when you were talking about the art that you had to evacuate $3 million worth of art yeah, from the yeah. embassy. Yeah. 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 <laughs> Yeah, it's super weird because, you know, we we didn't have surprisingly, I, I and I assume they fixed this since then, but because it was such a short notice, we didn't have like any aerial surveillance, no UAVs or anything like that. We had another C-130 Airborne that was from 234, our sister uh, reserve squadron that was overhead in the event that we had any issues, they could land um, after us. But we were kind of alone and unafraid going in there. And like, it was very, very odd because I was coming from Afghanistan where, you know, the, yeah, there were some ZPUs or, you know, there was uh, IEDs were a huge threat. RPGs were a threat, but going into South Sudan, as we were landing on the runway, there was like tanks lining the runway, not, not enemy tanks, obviously, but it was just, it was like a different, completely different kind of feeling there is mortar holes all down the runway 
Um, and, and there were several other allied nations there. I think uh, Australia was there. I think Sweden was there um, with their aircraft as well, evacuating their embassies. And so it was super busy. And I had a company of recon Marines, you know, run out and they set security around the airplane. They get all the people uh, that work at the embassy on the plane. And then they bring in these crates. And obviously our loadmasters are like doing the calculations of, of weight and you have to list what the cargo is. So we finally get off deck out of there and we're headed to Uganda to drop all these citizens off. And mind you, like a, a couple um, CV-22s had just been shot up like earlier that week. Several Navy SEALs were, had been injured. Um, and so we, you know, the your heart's going, you know, because you're like, oh God, I don't want to get shot up in a C-130 and I don't have any, you know, cover really i don't i'm gonna have to radio someone you know to tell them that something happened so anyway so we're finally kind of in friendly airspace and our loadmasters are like you're never going to believe this <laughs> guess what's in our load and i was like what and they're like three million dollars worth of art i was like oh well <laughs> we could stop flying c-130s again if some of that fell off the box and we, yeah right you know, we admired it. but yeah it was it was a crazy experience and um, you know, we ended up being in Uganda for about 72 days because uh, the rest of our unit was in Djibouti. And because um, they were redoing some of the ramps there, they just didn't have ramp space for us. So we had to stay in Uganda for 72 days, me and my crew and a couple of these recon guys. And it turned out to be an amazing experience because um, I was like liaisoning with the embassy, which again, as a brand new kind of captain aircraft commander, this was stuff that was like way above my pay grade most of the time. So, you know, liaisoning with the, the embassy, there was uh, an Air Force special ops unit, the, the CV-22s that had been shot up. They were, you know, had a bunch of battle damage. So they were grounded in, the, in Entebbe where we were in Uganda. And uh, it was funny because they were having a really hard time getting parts from Djibouti. They couldn't get any Air, Air Force aircraft to fly them their parts. And so we would occasionally go up to Djibouti just for the day to, you know, um, get parts for ourselves and stuff. So we were like illicitly running parts for the Air Force, like putting on stuff that they needed. And then we would grab stuff from them and fly them back. Um, and so you know, it ended up, we, we got a letter of appreciation from the general actually, because he was like, you know, you sped up our maintenance um, cycle by, you know, months because you were running these parts, uh, you know, no questions asked for us. And, um, you know, being able to make those kind of joint relationships and, um, you know, really kind of being on my own there as a senior person uh, at times was a a amazing leadership experience that, uh, you know, I wouldn't be able to get anywhere else as a 23, 24 year old kid. Yeah, you're absolutely right. I mean, it's a, that's, it's a big responsibility and working with a government agency, like, like the state department is completely different than working with another defense department agency. Yep. I know for Marine embassy guards, we have to go through a few months of training just to, they train us everything from how to, to talk to civilians to how to eat properly. So yeah. <laughs> they yeah. want to make sure that, that we're doing it right. But yeah, yeah. but I, I, I might be able to provide a little bit of insight for that, that art. So when we went to MSG school, um, we, the mission was clear, right? So you had to protect 
classified information, American personnel, and U.S. government property in that order. Um, I think it's changed. I think they put U.S. personnel above classified information since then. But when I went to my first post, one of our RSOs, that's the regional security officer, so the State Department employee who's in charge of security for the entire embassy, and he reports directly to the ambassador. But we asked him specifically on that last part. So like, what's what's American, what's U.S. government per, uh, property? Like, well, what, what do we have to protect? Mm-hmm. And he, he specifically pointed out the art. So apparently there's art in all these embassies that's worth a lot of money. So yeah, yeah that, that's, that's part crazy. of it. <laughs> I know, you wouldn't think that going into it. Um, yeah, yeah, you definitely wouldn't. Yeah. So how do you go from from combat missions in Afghanistan to evacuation, evacuating personnel in Africa to the Blue Angels? Yeah. Um, so they every year they released what's called a Mar Admin. I know most of the Marines listening knows what that is, but it's basically a message um, calling for people to apply for the team. Uh, there's usually only one Marine Corps jet pilot that flies on on the team at a time. And then Fat Albert, which is what I flew, the C-130 support aircraft, there's uh, three Marine Corps pilots. And then we obviously have a Marine Corps enlisted um, air crew. And so uh, while I was in uh, Africa, Uganda specifically, I got an email from the current M... Uh, he was he was one of the pilots, so we call him M1, M2, M3. And he was uh, the current M3 pilot. And he was like, hey, you know, you have a great reputation. Um, and, you know, you have enough hours now to apply. We would really like you to think about putting in your package to be a Blue Angel. And so, you know, I, I was kind of toying around with the idea. I, I really was thinking about going back and, you know, being a WTI and stuff. Um, but not, that's not guaranteed either so um i was like you know what i'll i'll put in my package even if i get it i can always say no you know we'll we'll see how it goes so i filled out all the paperwork um sent it in i came back in may of 2014 for my deployment um and you are required as part of the application process to the blues to attend two shows um where we used to say rushing. You're not allowed to use that anymore um, after we had an IG, but you're, you're applying. And so you go to these two, <laughs> you go to these two shows. And it was interesting because the application period ends like the first of June and I got back May 14th. So before I even saw my parents after my deployment, I went to two blue angel shows back to back so that I can meet the requirements. Um, and, and so basically what you're doing there is one, they're getting to know you. Um, if, you're on the road 300 days out of the year with these people. Right. And so you, you need to make sure that it's a good personality fit. So you, they're getting to know you, but you're also getting to know them. Do you want to spend 300 days with these people? Yeah, right. Um, and, and you're kind of seeing what the lifestyle is like. They have to go to, you know, different commitments where they're meet, they're either going to hospitals or high school. Sometimes they have evening events where they're kind of schmoozing with, with, you know, um, people who run the air show and stuff like that, or the community, uh, and then on top of the the normal air show requirements. So it's an exhausting schedule. Um, and so they want to make sure that you know what you're getting into. And that's the purpose behind these, you know, app- application air shows. So you do two of those. Um, if you're in the top two finalists for each position that's currently um, open on the team, then you'll get called down for finalist week, which is um, during the Pensacola Beach Air Show in Pensacola, where the Blues are stationed out of. And that's like the second week in July. And during that week, you'll 
again, do a formal interview with all 16 current members of the team. They'll actually fit you for your blue suit in the event that you're um, selected. They'll take your official photo in the event that you're selected so they can do a media, you know, spotlight on you. Uh, you'll get to meet the spouses and, and, you know, you get to bond with your other finalists. And so at the end of that, you go back to your unit and that Friday you call the boss or the CEO to find out if you make it. And, you know, when I called in, they were like, you know, you're very young. You, you have the minimum hours, but you know, most of the time people are pretty senior captains, maybe even major selects and you're several years away from that. You know, you, you could apply again in the future. And I was like, yes, sir. And he's, and, the, and he's like, Oh yeah. And one more thing. And then they were like, welcome to the team asshole. <laughs> so, uh, so yeah, I got, I got selected in the summer of 2014. So were you anticipated? To, I mean, it's, it's a big accomplishment, right? You're the first female pilot to join the blue angels. Um, you received a lot of attention for it. Were you anticipating this much attention? No. And honestly, I didn't even know I was going to be, I was the first female pilot until I was in that formal interview and finalist week. And they asked me about it. And, and I was like, they were like, so how are you going to handle being the first female pilot? And I, my answer was, I didn't know I was going to be, <laughs> you know, cause, cause it didn't matter to me yeah. at the time, you know, it did, it did not, it did not matter that I was going to be the first anything. That's not my motivation for joining the team. Um, my motivation for joining the team is that I was going to get to fly my beloved C-130 in a really awesome way and show it off and, and be able to kind of spread that message the Navy Marine Corps message to, you know, the community at large. Um, and I was going to be able to fly the shit out of an airplane and not get arrested for it. Right. Because <laughs> it was painted blue and gold. And so that's really why I joined, I joined the Marine Corps or excuse me, joined the, joined the blue angels. And so um, I, I, and because I was the fat Albert pilot, I was like, no one's even going to notice. No one's going to care that there's a female pilot. Like it's not going to be a big deal. And then it blew up. Mm -hmm. and, and and that's kind of a testament one to our, our PAO at the time, but two to to the fans of the Blue Angels that were in kind of desperately wanting a, a female pilot. And it wasn't really apparent that, you know, that was something that everyone was looking forward to until it happened. Right. And so then I ended up on, you know, Fox and Friends, uh, CBS This Morning, the Today Show, you know, a bunch of local news. Um, and surprisingly, like I've been promoted, I've transitioned as a reserve and I have a new last name now since I was on the team and I'm still getting attention for it. I still have, you know, 35,000 followers on Instagram. I was on the bachelor as a guest star teaching about aviation this year. I was on Nickelodeon this year and you know, it's 2020 and I got off the team in 2016 to give you an idea and I still have not selected another female. Um, and so I mean, people still find me and they're still super pumped about it. Um, and so, you know, it was, it was cool in that um, I could correct those misperceptions in particularly little girls and little boys that didn't know women could be pilots, didn't know women could be Marines, didn't know women could be blue angels for that matter. Um, and to be able to correct those misperceptions was um, something that I, I didn't go into it aiming to do, but ultimately being, Kind of the most rewarding thing that came out of being a blue angel i remember when that article first came out and uh, you know social media right most of the time everything on there's toxic but when yeah. this when this came out the 
the support from Marines were overwhelming. So every Marine Facebook page, and they were just sharing this article and nothing but great comments. So, I mean, I'm not speaking for every Marine here, but for me personally, it was it was a proud moment, right? We we never met each other. I don't know you, but but still, you have that com camaraderie that 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 fellow Marine that accomplished something big, and to be the first uh, Blue Angel, the first female pilot to join the Blue Angels, it was yeah, it's something that I took pride in, even though I had nothing to do with it. <laughs> but, but yeah. yeah. And what was really cool is when those articles came out is you would have like a couple of the weirdos that would be like nice boobs or, you know, <laughs> they would like post something like that. And then you'd get like a whole squad's worth of Marines replying back, like, shut the hell up, man. Yep. Like, you know, and just jump on them. And, you know, unfortunately, not to get like super political or anything, but the Marine Corps has gotten a bad rap in the last couple of years with Marines United with, you know, the, the uptick in, in sexual assault reporting and all this stuff. But I felt the complete opposite in my entire career with Marines. I have been uh, protected. I've been, you know, backed up a million times over by my brothers. Um, and, and that was just one example of it um, was when that article came out. So. Yeah. Yeah. We have, you know this, but we have a saying in the Marine Corps that says that the 10%, right? Those are the 10% yeah. are the ones who, uh, they're the troublemakers, the people who yep. don't really follow rules. Uh, yeah. And when you're in a, a platoon, that's only a, a few people, but when you take it out to the internet, you're talking thousands. Yep. But yep. yeah, I, I had a similar experience. So I'm, I'm Mexican and in the Marine Corps, we, we tease each other about everything, but it's, it's all with mm -hmm. love. So uh, what's considered racist now wasn't really <laughs> considered racist, yeah. there. but you have that support and you know that your fellow Marine will back you up. So yeah, it's, it's, it's great. And it's, it's great to hear that most of your uh, attention on this has been positive and that is still carrying on. Yeah, it, it definitely still is. And um, even after I left the team, I, I went to MWSS 271 back in Cherry Point after I finished my time on the team uh, to be a company commander of the air operations company there. And I ran a small airfield called Bogue, for those of you who are familiar with the area, it's about halfway between Lejeune and Cherry Point. Um, and, you know, being the senior person on Bogue, I had 130 amazing uh, firefighters, fuelers, uh, air operations, expeditionary airfield marines. Um, and it was, you know, such a kick-ass experience because it was like we were making the mission happen, the 130 of, of us together. And um, I, I got really close specifically with my head shed, um, one of which is uh, a Mexican-American Marine, uh, just like yourself. Uh, he's now Mass Sergeant Rangel. He's in um, Okinawa right now, but um, has orders soon to transfer Corona lets him leave. Um, but Mass Sergeant and I still talk probably once a week. Um, I'm, I mentioned earlier I'm pregnant. He's going to be the godfather of my baby. So, nice. I mean, you know, there's, amazing relationships that you can make in the core. And um, I luckily have have had such positive experiences, um, particularly as a female. So yeah, and trust me, as a company commander, you know that bottom 10% takes up like 90% of your time. Yep. So uh, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah. Unfortunately, something uh, we all have to deal with. But uh, I mean, yep. so, but so how do you go uh, 300 days out of the year is a lot of time. Uh, it must have been mm -hmm. quite a transition to go from that to back to your normal life. It was. Yeah, it definitely was. Um, and 
but it was good in, in that the the blues are obviously a Navy command. Again, no hit on the Navy. My dad was in the Navy. My brother's in the Navy, as is, as is his wife. Um, but their decision-making process is completely different than the Marine Corps process, right? We're taught, make it at the lowest level. You only elevate problems when you can't handle it yourself, right? While uh, in the Navy, it was a little bit different. It was, you know, I kept get, I got my hand slapped a couple of times because I was making decisions at my level and then just back briefing. Well, why'd you make that decision? Why didn't you ask me first? Like, I didn't know I had to ask you. <laughs> like, I evacuated an embassy, you know, like I, yeah, right. And I didn't have any oversight there. You know, I have to ask you every little thing about my airplane. And so it was just, it was a culture difference, right? And obviously, yeah, you could do it for two years, but the Marines on the team uh, got really close because all of us felt that friction or that rub a little bit, the culture difference. Um, and so, it was really, really awesome to get back to the actual Marine Corps, you know, and snap back into, you know, the way that we write orders, the commander's intent, the, you know, just, just the culture was like your security blanket, right? So getting, yeah. getting your blankie back was awesome to be back in, back in the Marine Corps. I, I appreciate you coming on. And I had one final question. I'm going to kind of put sure. you on the spot here. But when you okay. think of Marine Corps history, what event or person comes to mind for you? Ophame Johnson. Oh, that's a good one. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, and, and the reason that I say that, obviously twofold, you know, the, the female connection there, but my maiden name was Johnson. Oh. And so when I was going through TBS, I had a fellow air contract who would always call me Ophame, always because <laughs> of the last name. And so... um and so it brings back, you know, fun memories for me with, with that individual um, and my time at TBS. And, and of course, you know, the first female Marine is, a, is she paved the way for people like me to even be here. Um, and, and so many other amazing, strong female women before me and even pilots before me um, have, have even opened the door for me to be able to do what I did in my career. So. Um, I'm very grateful. No, that's that's a good choice. Yeah, she certainly paved the way uh, because of her. Yeah, the women cryptology movement in the Marine Corps was huge during the World War. So yeah, she yeah. she's definitely notable. And yeah, she's every Marine knows who she is. We taught about her in boot camp. Yep. And yeah, she lives lives with us forever. So yeah, it goes back to that camaraderie, right? You're, you're proud of your Marine, regardless yep. of yeah whatever demographic you want to throw in there. They're a Marine. Before we go, where can listeners find you? Uh, so I have a Twitter and an Instagram account. Uh, both both usernames are Gear Up Flaps Up. So that's obviously a, a aviation reference, but Gear Up Flaps Up. You can find me there um, as well as uh, kdncook.com. That's my uh, website where if you are looking to um, possibly have a speaker at some event, um, I do speaking events, motivational talks. I've done a couple Marine Corps balls which I have one lined up this year, which I'm super excited about. It's in Miami. Um, so yeah, I'll, I'll get to wear that, that evening dress. I got to swim up after the babies before the, the Marine Corps ball. Right. But um, yeah. I, so if anyone's interested in that, they can uh, reach out there. Sounds good. I'll throw the links up in the podcast description and make it easy for everyone. 
thanks for joining us, Katie, and I hope you enjoy the rest of your day. Thank you. You as well. And uh, I hope you have a great Memorial Day weekend. I know there's uh, several of us that are thinking of very specific people this weekend. You know, it's not all about barbecues and and uh, watermelon or whatever. You know, it's about those that have um, made the ultimate sacrifice for us. And so I hope you are uh, thinking of someone uh, close to you. And I appreciate you having me on in Semper Fi. Yeah, Semper Fi. That's a perfect way to go out. Thanks for joining, everyone. Be sure to check out Katie's information in the podcast description. We're on social media as well. Visit Marine History on Facebook and Twitter and History of the Marines on Instagram. If you or anyone you know would like to share your story, visit historyofthemarinecorps.com and shoot us a message. This segment is open to anyone. If you have an interesting story to share, we want to hear it. Thanks for listening and Semper Fi.